The content of this program is intended for people who are blind and print impaired. Hello and welcome to our November 2022 edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately? A program from the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. This program is brought to you by the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind, an organization of citizens, volunteers, and patrons all interested in supporting the library and the services it provides. The Friends Group was founded in 1989 and now has more than 300 members across North Carolina. If you'd like to join the Friends Group yourself, we'll have information on how to do that later in this program. This program is all about books with emphasis on those available from the State Library of North Carolina, accessible books, and library services. The library has more than 86,000 titles in its collection. Books and magazines are available in large print, braille, and talking books as well. The library also has more than 11,000 patrons across the state, across the state, and if you're not one, and are interested in becoming a patron, I'll have more information about that at the end of this program as well. This month, we take a look at some of the most popular books checked out in the month of October at the State Library of North Carolina, Accessible Books and Library Services. We begin with one of the most popular books last month. It's called The Secrets They Left Behind by Lisa Marie Redmond. Now here's the plot. A buffalo cop who's gone undercover for the FBI finds herself in a world of hurt. Shay O'Connor is 23 but looks 18. That's why the FBI used her to pose as a high school student to catch a serial killer, a case that left her scared both physically and emotionally. The case is still under a gag order, and Shay is back on boring patrol duty when FBI agent Bill Walters asks her to work another case for him. Three freshman college friends all went missing the same night in the little town of Kelly's Falls, New York. Now, against her better judgment, Shay accepts and is set up as Shay Anderson, a transfer to Harris Community College, whose parents were killed in a car accident and whose uncle is the town chief police, Roy Bishop. Since her fake uncle is youngish, unmarried, and unhappy, she's interfering in his case. She puts up in a boarding house. Emma Lansing and Olivia Stansfield, two of the missing girls, came from a nice area. The wilder Skylar Santana lived in a trailer park with her alcoholic mother while her drug-dealing boyfriend, Joe Stiles, worked on a GED at Harris. Shay immediately becomes friends with the missing girl's buds, Kayla, Jenna, and Maddie. She fends off passes from Joe while recognizing his bad boy appeal to young girls. Shay has no trouble fitting in and easily gains her new friend's confidence, but she still suspects that they're hiding information that could be the key to breaking the case. Even worse, she and Nick Stansfield, the brother who refuses to go back to RIT until Olivia's found, fall for each other, and she hates herself for deceiving him. Redman, a means to an end 2019, 
shows tensions mounting as Shea struggles for answers, along with the town united in its resolve to find the missing girls. A page-turner whose puzzling mystery and psychological drama are rooted in plausible descriptions of teenage angst. Once again, the book is called The Secrets They Left Behind by Lisa Marie Redmond. Now let's take a look at a book by Christopher Moore. This one is entitled Razzmatazz. It's a repeat New York Times best-selling author, Christopher Moore is, and he returns to the mean streets of San Francisco in this outrageous follow-up to his madcap novel, Noir. San Francisco, 1947. Bartender Sammy Two-Toes Tiffin and the rest of the Cookies Coffee Irregulars, a ragtag bunch of working mugs, last seen in Noir, are on the hustle. They're trying to open a driving school. Shanghai, an abusive Swedish stevedore, get Mabel, the local madam, and her girls to a Christmas party at the state hospital without alerting the overzealous head of the SFPD vice squad, all while Sammy's girlfriend, Stilton, and her Wendy the Welder gal pals are using their wartime shipbuilding skills on a secret project that might be attracting the attention of some government men in black. And, oh yeah, someone is murdering the city's drag kings, and club owner Jimmy Vasco is sure she's next on the list and wants Sammy to find the killer. Meanwhile, Eddie... Mushu's shoe has been summoned by his Uncle Ho to help save his opium den from Squid Kid Tang, a vicious gangster who is determined to retrieve a priceless relic, an ancient statue of the powerful rain dragon that Ho stole from one of the fighting tongs forty years earlier. And if Eddie blows it, he just might call down the wrath of that powerful, magical creature on all of Fog City. Strap yourselves in for a bit of old razzmatazz, ladies and gentlemen. It's Christopher Moore time. That sounds a little bit confusing to me, but I tell you, this book has been on the top ten list for the last couple of months, so I think it's really a great read. It's called Razzmatazz, and it's by Christopher Moore. Now let's turn to a book called Small Things Like These, and this was written by Claire Keegan. Here's the plot for this one. A tiny thing itself, a slice-of-life novella cheekily packaged as a full-scale novel. Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These is set in a small village in Ireland just before Christmas in 1985. Here the friendly mundanities of a working man's daily routine meet the grim shadow cast by the country's Magdalene laundries. At those secretive institutions which lasted from the 1700s through the 1900s and were typically run by Catholic nuns with the support of the Irish government, 
so-called fallen girls and women were imprisoned, worked and abused, their children often taken from them and neglected or even killed. In 2014, a mass grave containing the remains of some 800 babies and children was uncovered in a septic tank in the county Galway town of Tuam. Only in the past decade have the Catholic Church and Irish society begun to confront the horrors of the laundries that incarcerated approximately 30,000 women. For the fictional villagers in small things like these, as for its readers, the specter of these laundries is fleeting at first, a shock of cold you pass through quickly with a reflexive shiver before emerging into the next patch of sun. The protagonist, a coal and timber merchant named Bill Furlong, is himself the son of an unmarried Catholic mother who had fallen pregnant at sixteen and avoided the torment of a Magdalene home through the charity of her Protestant employer. Now an adult with daughters of her own, Furlong is going about his coal delivery rounds one day when he finds one of the nuns' abject charges locked inside a freezing shed. He takes the girl into the convent and shares a fraught cup of tea with the tyrannical Mother Superior. It's clear that eventually he'll have to decide whether to rescue the girl or leave her to her fate, turning a blind eye as the rest of the community would doubtless prefer. There's little modernity in Keegan's Irish town, except for passing mentions of jeeps and airports and 1980s British TV shows like All Creatures Great and Small. We barely see evidence of technologies, idioms, or trends more recent than the Industrial Revolution. Reading the story, I felt immersed in a 19th century landscape rather than one set in the years of my own teens, says the reviewer here. Instead of Pac-Man and Purple Rain and Madonna, the references are to shipyards and Dickens, anthracite, homemade fruitcakes, and Beecham's powder, a constipation remedy that dates from 1842. Such homey quaintification of Irishness is a fairly familiar trope, but there it's likely accurate enough. The country was still sunk in the past in 1985 when a doctor's prescription was required to buy condoms. And Keegan's prose, as she describes this trapped-in amber world, is both nostalgic and practical. The scope of village life may be small, but its texture is rich. Neighbors are welcoming. Customers give furlong gifts. Moments of interpersonal contact shimmer like the dimming jewels of a sense of community that, for many of us, has vanished into bygones. But the quaintness, Keegan implies, is a veneer overwrought. Beneath the charming give-and-take lurk steely warnings and a sociopathic lack of empathy. Even Furlong's wife, Eileen, a proper middle-class mother of five, refuses to entertain the reality of others' suffering. And so the town allows vicious crimes against its most vulnerable residents to go on unobstructed. Curiously, by casting Furlong as a reluctant, 
but good-hearted hero and the women around him as largely enablers and cowards, protective of their own children but otherwise seeing no evil, Keegan almost seems to suggest that in this community it was the women who were most keenly implicated in perpetuating the suffering of their own. Not only the nuns themselves, but the gossips and bystanders, and repressed and fearful bourgeois, like Eileen, who knew of the crimes and stubbornly turned their faces away. As in Ursula K. Legend's story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, this Ireland is a place whose cheeriness depends on the misery of its scapegoats. Sounds like a fascinating story. It's entitled Small Things Like These, and it was written by Claire Keegan. Now let's turn to a book by the very popular writer Anne Lamott. This is called Dusk, Night, and Dawn on Revival and Courage. Another helping of pop philosophy from this prolific writer. Here we are, older, scared, numb on some days, enraged on others, with even less trust than we had a year ago. Lamont writes of such challenges as the pandemic and threatens to Ameri- and threats to American democracy and to the planet in general. Where on earth do we start to get our world and joy and hope and our faith in life itself back? In these short essays, similar in style and tone as Almost Everything, Hallelujah Anyway, Small Victories, and the author's other works of nonfiction, she ventures some answers. Mixed in with details of her personal life, including her first marriage, at age 65, to a man who, unlike her, is not Christian, her struggles with alcoholism and the Sunday school classes she teaches near her California home. The book addresses such topics as forgiveness, repentance, climate change, and more. Though the book will appeal to her longtime fans, the essays are marred by observations that are trite or just plain obvious. For example, Maturity is retaining a modicum of grace when you do not get your own way. Growing up is hard. You make the plan, but you don't plan the result. Other statements will be open to debate. For example, darkness can be so soothing when you know it won't last forever. Love is being with a person wherever they are, however they are acting. It says something about this book that its best line is a misquote of Kurt Vonnegut who, in a 1994 Syracuse University commencement speech, said he told his grandchildren, Lamont says it was his children, when they complained about the state of the planet. Don't look at me, I just got here myself. For Lamont devotees, file alongside the aforementioned books. Others can take a past. A simplistic attempt at hope in troubled times. Nonetheless, a very popular book this past month at the State Library for the Blind, and it is entitled Dusk, Night, and Dawn on Revival and Courage by Anne Lamott. (laughs) 
And you're listening to Heard Any Good Books Lately? An original production from the North Carolina Reading Service. I'm George Douglas. Thanks so much for joining me today. Let's turn now to a novel entitled The Old Man by Thomas Perry. Perry drives deep into Jack Reacher territory in this standalone about a long-ago Army intelligence officer whose less-than-grateful nation just won't let him be. Dispatched to Libya a generation ago to deliver $20 million to Ferris Hamza for distribution to rebel fighters, Michael Kohler watched as Hamza sat on the money, purchasing a Rolls-Royce, financing a cadre of personal bodyguards, and doing everything except pass the bundle to the intended recipients. So Kohler grabbed the rest of the money and hightailed it back to the USA. His offers to return the money to the National Security Agency fell on the deaf ears of bureaucrats who informed him that he was a wanted criminal who'd better turn himself in and face the music. So Kohler went off the grid as Dan Chase of Norwich, Vermont, invested the money cautiously, and set up several false identities just in case. Ten years after his wife died, his past catches up with him in the shape of two Arab-looking men who break into his house while he's supposed to be asleep. After taking care of business with brutal efficiency, he goes on the lam once more. As Peter Caldwell, he drives to Chicago, where he meets Zoe MacDonald, who's quickly drawn to him. They make some sweet memories together as Henry and Marcia Dixon. Then it's time once more for Henry to leave. Julian Carson, the special ops contractor assigned to locate Dixon and set him up for the kill, ends up sympathizing with him instead, especially after he helps arrange the return of the $20 million and sees that it doesn't lessen the pressure on Dixon and passes on the information that allows the Dixons to escape, though it doesn't exactly feel like an escape to Marcia. They retreat to an isolated cabin in Big Bear. Carson quits the assignment and marries his Arkansas sweetheart. Both men wait for the inevitable, and in the fullness of time, it arrives with guns ablaze. Swift, unsentimental, and deeply satisfying, Liam Neeson would be perfect in this title role. It's a Jack Reacher novel, The Old Man by Thomas Perrer. Now, before I move on to the next novel, I want to make one correction here. That was not a Jack Reacher novel. That was a, a novel that reaches into the Jack Reacher type territory. And uh, it sounds like an equally exciting one. Once again, it's called The Old Man, and it was written by Thomas Perry. Sorry for that little uh, misunderstanding there. Let's move on to the next book. This is one entitled Lincoln and the Fight for Peace, and it's by John P. Avion. A groundbreaking, revelatory history of Abraham Lincoln's plan to secure a just and lasting peace after the Civil War, a vision that inspired future presidents as well as the world's most famous peacemakers. 
including Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, and Martin Luther King, Jr. It is a story of war and peace, race and reconciliation. As the tide of the Civil War turned in the spring of 1865, Abraham Lincoln took a dangerous two-week trip to visit the troops on the front lines accompanied by his young son. Seeing combat up close, meeting liberated slaves in the ruins of Richmond, and comforting wounded Union and Confederate soldiers. The power of Lincoln's personal example in the closing days of the war offers a portrait of a peacemaker. He did not demonize people he disagreed with. He used humor, logic, and scripture to depolarize bitter debates. Balancing moral courage with moderation, Lincoln believed that decency could be the most practical form of politics, but he understood that people were more inclined to listen to reason when greeted from a position of strength. Ulysses S. Grant's famously generous terms of surrender to General Robert E. Lee at Appomattox that April were a direct expression of the President's belief that a soft peace should follow a hard war. While his assassination sent the country careening off course, Lincoln's vision would be vindicated long after his death, inspiring future generations in their own quests to secure a just and lasting peace. As U.S. General Lucius Clay, architect of the post-World War II German occupation, said when asked what guided his decisions, I tried to think of the kind of occupation the South would have had if Abraham Lincoln had lived. Lincoln and the Fight for Peace reveals how Lincoln's character informed his commitment to unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. Even during the Civil War, surrounded by reactionaries and radicals, he refused to back down from his belief that there is more that unites us than divides us. But he also understood that peace needs to be waged with as much intensity as war. Lincoln's plan to win the peace is his unfinished symphony. But in its existing notes, we can find an anthem that could begin to bridge our divisions today. Once again, a book that sounds like a wonderful book. It's entitled Lincoln and the Fight for Peace by John P. Avion. Now let's talk about a very popular book by Simone St. James. It's called Silence for the Dead. And this is a review of this book. Where was this book a few years ago when I watched Crimson Peak and was dying for a book similar? If you saw Crimson Peak and loved it, then I think you will really enjoy this book, says the writer. One of the things that I liked about that film was how the house and ghosts both haunted the characters, and this book does something similar, and the effect is memorable and so wonderfully suspenseful. This is my final Simone St. James book, and I really wanted to end her books on a high note, and that's exactly what I did. I think this one was one of my favorites by her. In 1919, Kitty Weeks, pretty, resourceful, and on the run, 
falsifies her background to obtain a nursing position at Portis House, a remote hospital for soldiers left shell-shocked by the horrors of the Great War. Hiding the shame of their mental instability in what was once a magnificent private estate, the patients suffer from nervous attacks and tormenting dreams. But something more is going on at Portis House. Its plaster is crumbling, its plumbing makes eerie noises, and strange breaths of cold waft through the empty rooms. It's known that the former occupants left abruptly, but where did they go? And why do the patients all seem to share the same nightmare, one so horrific that they dare not speak of it? Kitty finds a dangerous ally in Jack Yates, an inmate who may be a war hero, a madman, or maybe both. But even as Kitty and Jack create a secret, intimate alliance to uncover the truth, disturbing revelations suggest the presence of powerful spectral forces. And when a medical catastrophe leaves them even more isolated, they must battle the menace on their own caught in the heart of a mystery that could destroy them both. This book was different in some ways than her other books. I love that the house itself was a big part of the ghost story. There were other ghosts, but the house was like this sinister presence that truly added a lot of horror to the book itself. Again, her books are paranormal, bordering on horror, but not to the point of terrifying. I would say more like spine-tangling and creepy. This one was a little more horror, but again, not overdone, where it would only appeal to certain readers. I really like that the ghosts and house in this book weren't you, your usual help-put-me-to-rest uh, ghosts. One of the ghosts and sinister in the extreme, and I like how it keeps readers scared, but yet pushes them to want to know why the ghost and the house are so dangerous. Also, the idea of madness was much more the main Gothic element than ghosts. Turn-of-the-century or Victorian-era madhouses really appeal to me when it comes to Gothic elements. There's something about the setting which really makes me, as a reader, feel uneasy. Are the patients really crazy, or are they made crazy from the treatments? That's exactly what I got in this book, and I was on edge and wasn't sure if I could trust the characters. I loved how that worked together with ghosts to create a memorable and extra suspenseful gothic read. That alone earned five stars for me. The complexity of the romance really hit a high mark. Jack is a patient in the madhouse by his own choice, which makes readers wonder how the romance will work. Kitty was equally flawed and not your normal heroine. She's a liar with a checkered past, and she has zero scruples when it comes to saving herself. You don't want to like her, but yet you do. She's sympathetic, and you can see how putting her and Jack together quickly develop into a romance. They are both flawed and complex, which makes the romance work for me. Overall, this is one of my favorite books by her, and I absolutely loved it. I read it in a day and was sad when it ended. I feel like I've really gotten to read something special when I read one of her books. A pretty amazing review of a book called Silence for the Dead by Simone St. James.
And that's all the time we have for this month's edition of Heard Any Good Books Lately? I'm George Douglas. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about how to become a patron of the State Library of North Carolina Accessible Books and Library Services, simply Google or search for Accessible Books, North Carolina Library, or call toll-free 888-388-2460. You can also use the same numbers and website to join the Friends of the North Carolina Library for the Blind. It's that wonderful organization that sponsors this monthly feature on books. This program is intended for people who are blind or print impaired. Heard Any Good Books Lately will be available right after the broadcast at our website, ncreadingservice.org. So long until next time. (laughs) 